All right. Um, Sophia is going to read our scripture for us this morning. While she's coming up, let me give you a little background. We are in the book of Genesis. We are in the, the last lap. Joseph, who, if you know the Bible a little bit, you know that he was sold into slavery, but he ascended all the way up the ranks to become second in command to the most powerful empire on the planet. So he is helper to Pharaoh, and a, a, a horrible famine has struck the land. But because of Joseph's plan, they have plenty of food. And so now God has used this famine. Remember this now, because I'm going to refer to it later. God has used this famine to draw his people back to Joseph. And Joseph, tell me here this morning, people, who is Joseph a picture of? Jesus, right. And so he's drawn these people to himself through difficulty. And the father and the son have been reunited. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning. And can you see the screen from there? This one? All right, great. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all of their possessions have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen, and if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock." Hold on for just a second. I just realized this one's up on the wrong sermon. <laughs> All right, we have to have you start up. We're on chapter 48. I don't know how that happened, but this one was set on the wrong one. Good job, Sophia. I, was... I thought that sounded familiar. <laughs> yeah. She caught it after the first verse. It took Dense Man here about eight verses to figure it out. Okay, let's start over. Just 48 verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. Put on the right one. There we go. Okay. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance." As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. When there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. 
And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim on his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand, toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand, and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the hand, head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been shepherd of my life all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on. And the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. All right, so this passage is going to kind of end with death. And death isn't always a pleasant topic. I had a friend that told me recently that he won a raffle that, where he won a casket. And uh, well, that's bizarre. And uh, so... Um, Anyway, that, there, there's different ways to look at that one, that's for sure, as a, it, in that raffle that he won. But we're going to divide this, ch this chapter up into a few sections here. Genesis 48, the promise and the adoption, the crisscross blessing, which is really bizarre, but we'll see what it means, and the reaction to the crisscross, and then finally the prophecy for Joseph. So let's jump right in. If you're ready to hear God's word, say amen. Amen. So after this, Joseph told, and behold... Whenever you see the word behold in the Bible, perk up because it's like, hey, look at this. This is going to be amazing. It says, or this is super important. And now it is so, super important because it says your father is ill. And the word ill here means he's terminal. Now, how many times before had Jacob say, I'm dying? <laughs> he literally been talking about dying like Fred Sanford. This is the big one, Wheezy, you know, for, for decades, literally for decades. He's now 147, but he's been talking about dying since he was in his 80s. So, uh, this time, behold, look, Joseph, he really is dying this time. He's not just crying wolf. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now notice the order here, okay? Manasseh is the firstborn. Ephraim's the second. So Joseph had two sons while he was in Egypt. And he had um, these sons by what kind of wife? She was Egyptian. So she has, he has a Gentile wife which is another beautiful picture of Jesus, that his bride would be Gentile, okay? 
And so Manasseh and Ephraim, notice the order, because in that culture, being firstborn meant you got a double portion. So if there were 10 kids, you divided up the, all the wealth into 11 portions, gave two portions to the oldest one, and then and everybody else got it pretty much even. There was different ways of doing it in different cultures, but that was mostly how it was done in this situation. Um, and so that order is important because it's going to be switched later. And it says, and it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. So he's dying, but he manages to get enough strength to pull himself together to sit up in bed and get his strength. And it's interesting what we're able to do when we want to. Have you ever noticed that? We've, I mentioned before about stories of people who were on their deathbed, but they knew. I, I remember my mom's case. Um, she, when she was passing away of emphysema, she was 84 years old. And all of us kids were flying in from all over the country and the grandkids from different parts because we were, we're very spread out, the Milborn family is. And there was one of my nieces who was driving in from South Carolina and was delayed. And my mom wanted to see Beth before she passed away. And so Beth got there late Friday night. And sure enough, Saturday morning, my mom was gone. She just held on to see the last grandchild. And so it's interesting, mind over matter is a real thing. In fact, the most recent um, Nobel Prize winner uh, on quantum physics talks about how there is a spiritual dimension and it's more powerful than the physical dimension. It's really amazing. He's a Christian man. And so there's more and more scientists we know that are either are Christians or becoming Christians because of the research and their study. He summoned his strength. What, what do you need to summon your strength for? Proverbs says the sluggard, which sluggard is a a really harsh way of calling someone lazy, says, oh, there's a line in the road. There's a line in the streets. In other words, this is an excuse. There's, somebody, there's a line outside. I'm not going to go outside. So I'm not going to get up and go to work today because I think there might be a line out there. I mean, they're really bizarre excuses, and you've heard them. <laughs> People come up with the strangest excuses to miss work or miss a lot of things. Verse 14 says, as a door turns upon its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. Alarm clock. Snooze. Alarm clock, snooze. <laughs> and you see the door turning upon its hinges. And we all fight that battle, some of us more than others. Um, and it says, and Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me. Now this phrase hasn't been used in a long time. He refers to God as God Almighty when he appeared, appeared to him. Anybody remember, I'll be impressed here, where God appeared to Jacob twice? How about Bethel? Good name, right? Bethel, okay? He's appeared to him there. In fact, uh, Exodus, Moses, who's writing the book of Genesis, he says later in Exodus 6.3, I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. That's how he appeared to him. But look at this. But my name, the Lord, which means whenever you see Lord in all upper caps, it means Jehovah, which is the more personal name of God. Um, it's, it's basically an anglicized version of Yahweh. He says, as that name, I hadn't made myself known to them that way yet. And then, let's see here. In, so he says, he appeared at Luz, which is also another name for Bethel, in the land of Canaan. Now, the land of Canaan was the Canaanites. Help me out here. Canaanites, good people or bad people? <laughs> Horrible people, bad people. They were sacrificing their own babies. They were brutalizing women and all kinds of other people. And it was there that God appears to Jacob. 
We want God to appear to us in church with all our friends. And I'm not saying he doesn't, okay? But let me tell you something. More often than not, God will show himself almighty in your most difficult situations. Don't curse the difficult times. Grow in them. Instead of asking, why God? Why me? Ask God, what? What do you want me to do, God, because of this situation? Don't, don't run from difficult times. And often we protect our kids from difficult times. We want to bail them out of everything. And so let, let them work think, through difficult times. Difficult times are what make us stronger. And that's where God shows himself as mighty. You see, uh, all the things that happen at, in Canaan, Canaan, remember that was the ladder. Remember he saw uh, the, Jacob's ladder and, and the angels ascending and descending. Of course, G, later Jesus would say, I'm the ladder. I'm the way to God. Dinah, family member, got raped there. And, so, and then Rachel and Isaac will die there, are about to die. So all these things are happening in what looks like a really difficult situation. So God most often shows himself almighty when you are at your weakest points in life. Look carefully. If you're in a weak time right now, make the choice to let it make you better, not bitter. Gone through bankruptcy recently? Let it make you better, not bitter. Gone through a divorce recently? Get better, not bitter. It's all about your choice. You have a wayward child who's far from Jesus right now? Don't become bitter against God. Let it make you better. Let it make you stronger. Um, let me see if I can synchronize these two here. All right, here we go. So cults often teach that Jehovah is the almighty God and Jesus is just mighty God. And, and they'll make that distinction there as if there's, and even though it says in Isaiah 43, 10, that I am God, there's none else besides me. In fact, I don't even know another, of another God. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons will say Jesus is a God, little g. But there are no other gods. Is Buddha really a God? Is Baal really a god? They, we call them god. I mean, you can call your car a god, but it doesn't mean it's make it true. And so, but this is the mistake that they'll make. In Revelation chapter 1, behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds. And what does Jesus say? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending. And Jehovah God says in, in Isaiah, I'm the beginning and the ending. So do we have two beginnings and two endings? No, Jehovah God and Jesus are one and the same. And look what he goes on to say. The Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus calls himself the Almighty God. Jesus was the one who appeared to Jacob. They are one and the same. We believe in one God who eternally is distinct as three persons. And so, and it goes on to say here, so Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at, at this place during a hard time. And what did he do? He blessed me. Difficult. We often think about praying for God's blessing. Is that, oh, I got a raise. I'm so blessed. I, I don't have, I'm not sick. I'm so blessed. Everybody in my family is great. I'm so blessed. We don't look at difficult times as blessings, but they are. If they'd make us more like Jesus, then that's a blessing. Are you being persecuted right now? What did Paul and Silas say when they were beaten and thrown in jail? That we praise God and count ourselves worthy to suffer like Jesus. Suffering makes you more like Jesus. When, when Jesus is on the cross and says, Father, forgive them, people who are crucifying him, when we're going through persecution, that's when we become most like Jesus. So don't run away from the hard times. And it says, behold, I will make you fruitful. In spite of the difficult times, I'll make you fruitful and multiply you. And again, that's a hyperlink back to Adam and Eve. Where, where are they at? They're in Goshen, which is the garden area of Egypt. 
And in there, in there, they're being fruitful and multiplying. They're fulfilling what Adam and Eve did not. And it says, I will make you a company of people and will give this land to your offspring. So there, there was two sides of the promise that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that is, you will have a vast number of people, stars in the sands as the sky, you can't number, and I'll give you a land. And so the land has not been fulfilled yet, but it's going to be. It says, now to your two sons, Joseph has two sons by this Egyptian woman, and you were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt. They are mine. Now, he's not saying, I've taken your kids away from you. Guys, settle down. So, they are, they, these two kids, he's saying, I'm going to include them in my inheritance as if they were my, your other 11 brothers. Well, I'm going to divide up the land of Israel. So the 12 tribes of Israel, even though there's 13 sons, Joseph's going to get the double portion through Ephraim and Manasseh. That's why there's not a tribe of Joseph. There's a tribe of his two sons. He says, those are mine, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so notice the names have switched. Manasseh is the older, but he says, no, Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, just as Reuben, number one birth order, and number two birth order are. So in other words, just like Reuben's number one and Simeon's number two, I'm going to make your two sons number one and number two, but I'm doing it this way. And that's why we'll see the crisscross blessing here in just a moment. So, and the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. So in other words, You'll take care of their inheritance. I'm going to take care of the inheritance for these. He's not taking over and adopting and taking his kids away. He's just talking about inheritance in the context. And they should be called by the name of their brothers. Again, Ephraim and Manasseh. That's, so all the other sons that Joseph may have had, we don't, there's not, it's not recorded that he had any, so he did or didn't. They're going to fall under the category of one of these two other sons when, in reference. So as for me... He's, now he's going to say, hey, as far as me dying is what the context is. When I came from Padam to, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. When there was still some distance to go before Ephrath, I buried her on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And so he's saying, hey, as far as me, when I die, I want to be buried with Rachel. That's the context of what he's trying to say here. And it's ironic because Jesus would be born where? In Bethlehem. So you see the connection here is major. Jacob and Joseph are now at the crossroads where they can see how all their trials and all their sufferings have been orchestrated by who? God, for their, God, for, for their good and God's glory. You see, people have this false theology that everything that's evil in life comes from Satan and every difficult time comes from Satan, but not all, everything good comes from God. Everything good comes from God, but sometimes difficult times are what's good for us. The difficult times are what's best for us. So God allows things. Notice that uh, God's the one who gave permission for Job. Notice that in the Passover, the death of the firstborn, it was the Lord's doing. It, all these things. So we, we, have, we have to realize that God can use pain. God can use suffering for his glory. There was two ladies uh, in Iran, Mariam and Marzadeh, and they became Christians while in Iran. Well, they began to fear for their life because they began to be threatened. They were disowned by their families. And so they left Iran. They were able to sneak out of the country and go to Istanbul, Turkey. And there they attended a seminary and they learned the Bible more in depth. And while they were there, they came very burdened for the, their families and for the people of Iran, for the Muslim people there, that they wanted them to know Christ. So they smuggled in 
to back into Iran in their in backpacks and in suitcases and all kinds of things, thousands and thousands of New Testaments. And what they would do, and what they would do every night, late at night, they'd put on their backpack and put about a hundred New Testaments in their backpack, and they'd walk around the cities, different cities in Iran, and they would put them in the mailboxes, New Testaments, all over the place. They were just spreading the gospel that way. And they thought this was the best way to do it. They weren't allowed to have too many one-on-one conversations because they could be, end up in jail. So they did this for almost two years, and then someone turned them in. Someone figured out what they were doing, and they ended up in one of Iran's worst prisons, the Evan Prison uh, in Iraq. The, 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 the conditions there are deplorable. There's ba- barely enough room. There's feces and urine all over the floors. Most of the toilets do not work. The place is, the, the food is horrible. I mean, and the treatment was really bad. They began to be interrogated for hours and hours and threatened that their family would be killed if they didn't confess. And they'd put a piece of paper in front of them and say, all you have to do is deny that Jesus Christ is Lord. And they're like, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. And so uh, in Iran, you don't have the same freedom to do in America. They asked for a lawyer. They were denied one. They finally did get a lawyer who courageously took it on. Two days after he agreed to be their lawyer, he ended up in jail. Because, and, and again, they, no trial. And they just, they're just in jail. And the lawyer's in jail. Finally, the lawyer gets out. He does try to represent them. And he, they, he gives them the impression this will take a few weeks. Months passed. And more months passed. And more harsh treatment. And more persecution. The fellow prisoners were treating them bad. The guards were treating them bad. Thankfully, they were never sexually assaulted, but they were treated badly while they were in prison, and they were persecuted. And what was so interesting is one night, one of the ladies was covered with a blanket that smelled like urine, but she was freezing because they didn't heat the place. And uh, a fellow prisoner came up and kicked her in the side, and she looked at her, pulled the blanket, she said, what? She said, give me a cigarette. She said, I don't smoke. She said, give me a cigarette, and she started kicking her. And, and she's like, I don't have any cigarettes. She said, finally went away. But do you know that a few days later, that same inmate came to her and said, would you pray for me? And she said, don't tell anybody, I'm asking you to pray for me. And because they were kind to all of their enemies in the prison, one by one, prisoners and guards started coming to these Christian ladies saying, would you pray for me? Would you pray for me? Tell me more about Jesus. And the whole, what they thought, they, they began to be discouraged at one point because they thought they would be out and months and months, and now it ended up being almost two years that they're in prison with no trial. No trial, just, just stuck in prison. And they started to be discouraged about this. And like, why, Lord, why? We were doing your work out there. But one by one, they started leading prisoners to Christ. And they started, leaving, they started leading guards to Christ. And there ended up being a church inside the prison. And it was just amazing. And so they counted that at least 60 women came to Christ while they were in prison. And now when they look back on this, they finally got out. They say, you know what? We're thankful for the time that we were there. When you're in the midst of something, it's hard to be thankful. But if you realize what God is doing, they thought they were doing God's work out there, you know, distributing New Testaments, and they were. But God says, hey, I'm going to put you face to face with people who you can have gospel conversations. Because what are they going to do to you? Throw you in jail? And that's what they realized. And so they realized that more people got saved during that two years than the previous two years of passing out New Testaments. So let's move on to the crisscross blessing. When Israel saw, and he can barely see, as the later verses will tell us, whether it's glaucoma or uh, 
and whatever problem he's having with old eyes here. He says, who are these? Doesn't mean he doesn't know who they are. He's because he can't see, he just sees shadows. This has been 17 years. He knows these boys are like 19 and 20 right now. So he just sees the Joseph bring in two figures. He doesn't know who they are because of the vision, the lack of it. And he says, he wants to know who they are. And Joseph said to his father, these are my sons whom God has given me here. Joseph sees God working while he's in Egypt. He knows that he was a slave. He was falsely accused. He went to prison. But hey, God worked it out. And look what God gave me. I wouldn't have these two sons if it wasn't for the prison and for the slavery. So I, he recognizes and he praises God for his two sons. And he says, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now, this isn't just so, hey, God bless Ephraim, God bless Manasseh. It's like, no, I want to pass on, I want to officially pass on the inheritance. This was a, a tribal custom of passing on the inheritance, which was going to involve a great deal of land and wealth. So now the eyes of Israel were dim. There you go. He couldn't see very well so that he could not see. What story does that remind you of? Who else could not see very well when there was a blessing involved? Remember, who was it? Isaac, yes, good job, Amanda. Isaac, Jacob's dad, he, he couldn't see. And what did Isaac and Rachel do? They schemed to, to steal the blessing. So they put hair, animal fur on his forearms and made him smell like a hunter. And he came in with some stew, made it taste like venison. And because Isaac was all about the food more than being spiritual, and he tricked them into giving God's blessing. But now, Jacob remembers all that and says, I'm not going to do to my, I'm not going to let them do to me what my, I did to my dad. I'm going to do this right. I'm going to follow God's blessing. And so he, it's got to make him think back to when he deceived his dad with his vision. Now here, he's the one on the blind side, no pun intended there. All right. So now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near. So he brings them up and he's going to arrange this. And, he, and of course he kisses them and he embraces them. It's very very uh, uh, tender time right here. And Israel said to Joseph, I never even expected to see your face. Again, it's been 17 years and it's still new. Like, I can't believe it. I thought you were dead for decades. You know, I had you for the first 17 years of, my, of your life and now I'm going to have you for the last 17 years of my life. And I can't believe it, that God's been so good to make this reunion happen. And he and says, behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Before Jacob was the one manipulating all the circumstances in life, and he thought he was the one in control, that he could change anybody's mind or sneak or lie or do whatever. But now, finally in his old age, better late than never, he's recognizing God's hand in his life. That Not only did he get to see the son he thought was dead, he gets to see his grandsons as well. Then Joseph removed them from his knees. And you think, what are 19 and 20-year-old boys doing sitting on an old man's knees? Well, in adoption... That was customary. Whenever you adopted anybody, they sat on your knee, okay? And even if it was a grown adult person. So these guys, I don't know how they're sitting on knee, but this is what's happening here. And then Joseph bows his head and his face to the earth. I mean, this is a time of worship. He is, I mean, Jacob's doing this, and Jacob is recognizing God's hand. Before, he didn't want to recognize that God switched Jacob and Esau. He wanted to force it to be Esau, and, realize, and didn't want to accept God's will in the situation. But now he's fully embracing what God's about to do here. And Joseph took them, both Ephraim, in his right hand towards Israel's left hand. So he takes the secondborn, puts him on the left hand. And in that culture, left hand was secondary. 
Right hand, that's the strong hand. You know, where is Jesus seated? At God's right hand. Then he takes the firstborn and he puts him over here on Jacob's right hand so he'll be able to bless him there. So now Joseph's the one trying to orchestrate things, but he's just doing it according to culture. It's kind of interesting observation. Joseph is a picture of Jesus, as we've said many times. And therefore, he's the only character in the Old Testament we see no sin mentioned about because Jesus was sinless. But there's a couple of times where it looks like eh, that could be a sin. Like, for example, when J- Joseph is going to his brothers talking about his dreams, you could say, ah, oh, that borderline bragging there. I think I would have kicked you in the pit too if you'd come off that cocky and stuff. So it doesn't, it's not black and white that he did. And here, same thing. You see Joseph at the, towards the end of the Jacob's life doing what seems like a foolish thing, or at least he's reacting to culture. So it's interesting those bookends there uh, reminds us of a chiastic structure, which is the only time I'm going to mention that this morning. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim, the younger one that he put on his left hand. And then he took his left hand and put on Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the firstborn. So he's got this mess thing going on. He's got a crisscross blessing going on here. How many times in the Bible does God go against culture and choose the younger brother. The whole idea of this primogenitor, which is firstborn runs everything, was a cultural thing. It wasn't a bad thing, by the way. In fact, the dad had to train the oldest son to run the business and do everything, so if he died suddenly or died of old age, the plantation, the family wealth, everything could continue. So it was a good thing. But God says, you know, I don't always work with culture. And how many times does God switch these roles up? In order to kind of see this, we have to get a 30,000-foot view. We're just going to pull back and look at the Bible. And, and again, this won't be an exhaustive case, but consider that God chose Adam over the angels. Who was made first? The angels were. But God said, second-born Adam, you're going to be in charge of all creation. And the angels were like, what? <laughs> no, I don't think so. They, they went along with it. God chose Abel's offering, second-born, over Cain's offering, first-born. God chose Moses over Aaron, who was older. Aaron was by three years. God chose Joseph over all of the older brothers to save the world by ruling Egypt. God chose David to be king over his seven older brothers. God chose Gideon over his brothers to be the deliverer of Israel. The prodigal son repents, and the older brother did not. God chooses the weak over the strong to glorify himself. You see that pattern throughout all over the Bible. It continues. God, God chose barren Sarah to give us Isaac, a woman who in her old age couldn't have babies, and all of a sudden she miraculously has a baby. God chose barren Rebecca to give us Jacob. God chose barren Rachel to give us Joseph. God chose barren Hannah to give us the prophet Samuel. God chose barren, a barren wife of Manoah to give us Samson, another deliverer. God chose the barren Shunammite woman to give us Elisha, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. God chose Ruth, the Moabitess, to give us Obed, the grandfather of King David. God chose barren Elizabeth to give us John the Baptist. And guess what? You know, it's not surprising to see God chose teenage Mary to give us Jesus. Do you see God's pattern of choosing the underdog, the weak, the poor, the teenager, all those you would not expect to use That's what God uses. And you say, well, can God use me? Yes, he can. 
I don't care what you put in between that, those two sentences. Can God use me? I've been divorced. Yes, he can. Can God use me? I'm just a new Christian. Yes, he can. But, Gary, you don't know my background. Yes, he can. God specializes in taking the broken, the weak, the sinful, the failures, and making successes out of them for our good, good and his glory. 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven tells us why. But God chose what is foolish, or you could put air quotes on that, foolish, appears to be foolish in the world, to shame the wise, the so-called intellects. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in his presence. There's another time the Bible mentions about boasting. You know, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, it's not of works. Why? Lest anybody should boast. You see, if you go to heaven based on your good works, you're going to go to heaven and say, yep, I made it. Man, all that tithing paid off. Look at me, I'm here in the streets of gold. All the time volunteering at the homeless shelter and telling people about Jesus, look at me, I made it. Look at me. (laughs) You know full good and well that's not going to be heaven, is it? Heaven's going to be like, I can't believe I'm here. I think of all the times I failed Jesus, all the selfish moments in my life, and he let me by his grace still come here. Isn't God good? And we're all going to boast about Jesus. And that's why God chooses the weak. So don't think that God can't use you. That's, now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't use that as an excuse to go out and sin and make a whole bunch of dumb mistakes on purpose. <laughs> okay? Uh, but in spite of ourselves, God can use great things because when people see God working in your life, like, how does he do that? I mean, look at that. You have all kinds of reasons to be upset at God. Look at you. You still love him. Who is this God? And then, after doing this crisscross blessing on the grandsons, he blesses Joseph. And he said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd. Think about that. He's calling God his shepherd. And what did David write about in Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. And what's the middle, the chiastic structure of Psalm? Oh, I said I wouldn't say it again. The middle of Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Here is Jacob in the shadow of death, And he recognizes all my ups and all my downs. He's been my shepherd. And I've been nothing but a a dumb sheep. (laughs) And so he says, all my life. He's saying, even in the good and in the bad, the Lord has orchestrated it all. He is the great shepherd. So then he says, and the angel who redeemed me from all the evil. If you go back to chapter 31, where the angel of the Lord appeared to him, and I believe the angel of the Lord there was Christ, he's the one who blesses the boys. He let my name be carried on. And the name of my father Abraham and Isaac, and he let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So let's move on to the next point here, the reaction. Joseph's reaction is like, what? You know, you're breaking custom here, Dad. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And I already mentioned about the youthful bragging. This kind of bookends on some flaws in Joseph here. And so he took his father's right hand, and he moves it, trying to move the hand over. And dad's like, no, 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 don't move my hand. <clears throat> and Joseph said to his father, no, no, not this way, my father. He thinks dad's old, dad's senile, and dad's half blind. He just got mixed up. He literally got crisscrossed. And he says, no, not this way, father, since this one is the firstborn. 
Put your right hand on his head. That's the way the blessing should go. But his father refused. And this is, as far as I know, the only time in this Bible, this phrase that your mom told you a hundred times. I know, my son, I know. And as far as I know, it's the only time in the Bible that it, it's the repeating of the I know. He's like, I know what I'm doing. I know what you're thinking. But trust me, I know what I'm doing here. He also shall become a people. Don't worry about it. I'm not putting the left hand over here because he's not going to be anything. He's going to be a great, pe great people. He's going to amount to a lot. It's just his brother's going to amount to more. His younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become as a multitude of nations. And it is from this we get the 12 tribes of Israel. And you see the blue box there is Manasseh, the red box of Ephraim. And so which two tribes are at the middle of the 12? These two. They are in the heart of the land. They are the, the lion's share of the land. You see that Israel often is referred to as Ephraim and Manasseh because it's, it's, it's just such a big part of it, kind of like what Texas is in the United States. It's the best and the biggest. And I'm not talking about Alaska this morning. That's so far away. But anyway, you see that God used this mixed up, crazy, rebellious family to make the greatest nation on earth, his chosen people, Israel. And he does it with these two grandsons as well. So it's interesting, Moses is writing here and he says, so, he, so Moses is telling the story, he said, so Jacob blessed them that day, the two grandsons and Joseph, saying, by you, Israel, this is the first time he refers to now Israel as the nation. The nation of Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, this will be a custom, that people will say this, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. If you follow the chosen carefully, they've said that twice. God bless you as Ephraim and Manasseh. You know, you see all the little customs there where like they, they kiss the door and all the things they do. Anyway, you'll hear them say this blessing twice in the episodes there. If you haven't watched it, I recommend you do it. They're chosen. Um, anyway, it became a common blessing amongst Jews. And in and, and some Orthodox Jews, they still say this blessing today. Why? What, what's so important about a blessing saying, God bless you like Ephraim and Manasseh? Well, we have to go back to their names. You see... Joseph called the firstborn Manasseh. Here's why. For or because he said, God has made me forget all my hardship. God made me forget about the slavery. God made me forget about the prison. God made me forget about my brother storming me in a pit. And the list could go on and on. And God has made me just leave my past behind. That's a good thing, amen? And then he goes on to say, and so this, this blessing here, he goes on to say, let me go back here. Um, and then he called, let's see, I think I've messed up here. So then Manasseh is about being fruitful in the land. So let's see, Ephraim. Yeah, so one son's name means forgetting the past, and the other one is being fruitful and multiplying in the future. So basically, when you say, God bless you, like Ephraim and Manasseh, may you be able to leave your past behind and move on to a fruitful future. That's what the blessing means. And that, it's amazing, when we study the Bible carefully, these are the things that come up. All right, so now let's go, we've covered the promise and the adoption the crisscross blessing, Joseph's reaction, and now brings us to the final point, the prophecy for Joseph. Jacob here is a prophet. He's going to predict the future. And like all prophet, true prophets, what percentage of it comes true? A hundred percent. So the Bible, in fact, makes it very clear in Deuteronomy. If someone prophesies something that doesn't come true, what kind of prophet are they? False prophet. And there's a punishment attached to it, and that's getting stoned. And I'm not talking about weed. I'm talking about rocks, okay? So the punishment was severe. And people today make all kinds of prophecies. Oh, Jesus is coming back. I remember there was a guy who wrote a book when I was, when I was let's see, when I've been my second year in college. It was called 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming in 1988. 
Some of you are old enough to remember that. And then Jesus didn't come, so he came up with 89 reasons Jesus is coming up in 1989. <laughs> and so he said, oh, I made a mistake. And all he did was sell lots of books, and Jesus didn't come back. So that would be a false prophet. And you hear people doing that all kinds. Joseph Smith of the Mormon church made all kinds of false prophecies. That makes it pretty clear. William Taze Russell, the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses, all kinds of false prophecies. Islam, Muhammad, all kinds of false prophecies that did not come true. Where's the accountability? Jesus, still 100%, still batting a thousand and all of his prophets, okay? So then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I am about to die. And this time he's actually right. But even in the midst of all this chaos and darkness, God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Joseph's not been in the promised land since he was 17. And now a lot of time, decades have passed. And he said, but hey, you're not going to retire and die here in Egypt. God has told me you're going back. And of course, he's not going back alive, though. He's going back in the casket. In Exodus 13, 19, Moses makes sure that Joseph's bones are carried out. When they, when they exodus, you know, they, they plunder all the gold of Egypt, they all stuff. But they also have um, Joseph's bones probably embalmed or whatever they did, carrying them out to take them to the promised land. Um, recently, Isaiah and Caitlin, we wanted them, to, we want, we're kind of going back and watching like old classic movies so they have some historical context. We watched uh, The Ten Commandments with Charleston Heston and all that stuff. And so we challenged them, look for what's biblical and what's not biblical. But they did see them carrying out Joseph's bones. And of course, that is, that is biblical. Um, moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope. I have a special place I'm giving to you, not to my brothers. Even though you're not the oldest, I'm doing this. And I took it from the hand of the Amorites. Now, this is interesting just for you one, people who are, want to be nerdy about this. Is that when Simeon and Levi went and killed all the Shechemites? I don't think so. Because he says, by my sword and by my bow. There's really no historical or biblical account of him taking this land. But not everything is in the Bible. Um, when G we talk about Jesus' miracle, and they said, you know, if, if, if you were to record all the miracles and teachings of Jesus, all the books in the world couldn't hold it. Okay? So there's no problem with the Bible not recording this. He, in fact, this is it. This is the reference. So we don't know that it didn't happen, but we, we have every reason to believe because he said so that it did happen. But again, it's not a contradiction in the Bible. There's no there's no conflict there whatsoever. He says, God will be with you and bring you again into the land of your fathers. And Abraham uh, uses the same phrase. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. So the whole idea of the bones going back to the promised land, dying with your people, being buried with your people, it's not just superstition. It's a hope of the resurrection that we will be buried together so that we can be raised together. They believed in the resurrection even back then, and the Bible clearly teaches that. And in the New Testament, you see 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, because there was a lot of misinformation about the resurrection at this time. So Paul writes this special letter to clear things up. He said about those who are asleep, and asleep means what? Dead. That's this nice poetic way of saying it. That you may not grieve as others who have no hope. And here's what he goes on to say. For since we believe, now, based on this belief, here's what's going to happen. For those of you who don't know Christ, you've not been saved yet, you've not been born again, not made that decision to cross that line of faith. If you don't believe this, this doesn't apply to you. 
And that's important that you do believe this, so this will apply to you, okay? If you believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So he'll take those who are alive and those who have already passed on, and he will take those who are dead, and they'll meet together in the air. And it goes on to say, in, in fact, John, Jesus says in John, what just happened here is Lazarus, Jesus, one of his best friends, Mary and Martha, their brother, has died. And they sent for Jesus to come and heal him while he was still sick. And Jesus delayed. Jesus purposely let the guy die. I mean, that's really rough, isn't it? Again, Jesus causing difficult circumstances to make us stronger. But then he comes and they're like, Jesus, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. And he said, hey, slow down. I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in the resurrection, it's not just a concept. It is me. I'm a person. I give new life, and I'm the, one that, I'm the one that gives all that. And he said, for whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So this is a promise to everyone who has put their faith in Christ. And by, let me be more clear. By putting your faith in Christ, I'm not saying, well, trust him to provide all your food, to pay your bills. That's, that's good. But here's the problem. All of us are sinners. All sin must be punished by a righteous judge. But God has this tension here. Man, I need to punish them because that's who I am. I'm a holy, righteous judge. But I love them so much, I don't want to see them burn in hell forever. What do I do? What do I do? And Jesus is like, I'll take the punishment. Well, how can you, one person, take the punishment for billions of people? Um, I'm infinite. <laughs> I'm infinite, God. So my sins can die for an infinite number of people. My, my, I can die for the sins of an infinite number of people. So Jesus literally took your punishment, your death penalty upon himself. And here's what he says. Let's make a trade. I'll give my life. You give me yours. And when you, that's why we say give your life to Christ. You say, Lord Jesus, I will live for you because you died for me. And when you make that decision, you experience the resurrection of new life and your body will experience it when he returns. If you confess Romans chapter 10 says, with your mouth, the Lord, the Jesus is Lord. You give him your life. You say, you are in control. Lord means boss, king, whatever you want to call it. And then you believe in your heart that he died, was buried, and rose again. You shall be what? Saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, another fascinating story here in Genesis, the crisscross blessing. That's what you do. You crisscross things. You don't give salvation to those who think they're righteous. You give it to those who know that they are not. You cross your hands and, and you pick the younger ones, the, the orphans, the widows, the foolish, the weak. Lord, I'm thankful you crisscrossed your hands and, and gave grace to people who do not deserve it. So, Father, I pray that if there's one here this morning, whether they're watching online or in this audience with us, if they've not trusted Christ, that they would do so right now, that they could pray a prayer something like this. Father, I know I'm a sinner. I know the guilt and the shame that goes with it. I'm thankful that Jesus took all of that on the cross, that he took my place, and I want to give my life to him right here, right now. And I trust you that you will save my soul for, for Jesus' sake. Father, thank you for working in hearts today. Pray that you would just help us prepare as we enter into a time of communion here momentarily. And we thank you for the glory of Jesus that we see in Joseph. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you still have questions about becoming a Christian, there's my cell phone number. Please call me or text me anytime. Let, let's have a conversation about that. All right, Miss Alon, would you come help me do question and answer time? And remember, there's a, a gift card online.
So um, looks like we have three questions. So we'll see. Still time to send in more if you want to text them in. If you don't think your text is going through because reception here, feel free to uh, raise your hand and we can ask it that way. All right, here's our first question. And don't say who they're from because we don't want to bias the, the judges out here. <laughs> Why did the blind man say son of David? Oh, very good question. So Jesus is obviously not literally um, David's son in the sense that we use the word son. The Bible uses the word son to refer to ancestor, okay, or descendant from. So Jesus is a descendant of David. Why is that important? Because David was king, and the prophecy would be there'd be a greater king than David, which David is the greatest king Israel's ever had. So Jesus would be the greater king. So he's a descendant of David, not son in the way that we use the word son. But good question. Are Christians now held more accountable for our actions than Old Testament believers because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us at all times? Very good question. And the answer is 110% yes, we are. Um, to, the Bible says, to whom much is given, much is expected. And if you've been given the Holy Spirit, because remember in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon people. You know, you see the Bible say the Spirit came upon Saul, but then the Spirit left Saul. The Spirit came upon Samson, but then it left Samson. But Jesus says, if I go away, I will send you a greater comforter who will be inside of you, who never leaves. The Holy Spirit came upon and left people in the Old Testament. He comes to live within. And so you've got no excuses. You've got this internal compass in the person of the Holy Spirit telling you right and wrong. And Gary does it anyway. <laughs> we all do it anyway. So we're held to a greater level of accountability because again to whom much is given much is expected you've got a bible the sword of the spirit and you've got the holy spirit living within you and so yes we will be held to a greater degree of scrutiny why did it matter that joseph bones be in a certain place and is it important now that our bones end up in a certain place on on earth it was a a custom and it was just a thing out of respect so it, it, there's nowhere in the Bible that commands that you be buried in a certain place, okay? So it was just, they had just that strong of a belief in the resurrected that they wanted to be resurrected. So I, I believe literally, and I think Abraham and Sarah did too, that when they're resurrected from that cave, it'd be like, hey, Sarah, how you been? <laughs> Boom, let's go. You know, I mean, I'm not, not trying to make light of it, but I think that they literally saw themselves being resurrected together. And of course, God can resurrect your body from anywhere. I mean, what if your body's been blown up or burnt and your dust has been scattered? God's the creator of the universe. He spoke all these molecules into existence. He could bring all them back together, do whatever he wants. And of course, it's going to be a new glorified body. We'll still recognize one another, but it'll be a new glorified body that is supernatural, not mortal. Any other questions? Mm -hmm. There's one more. Okay. Somebody's trying to win a card. <laughs> Each time I read one, another one pops up. We could be here all day. <laughs> How are Christians supposed to view the political persecution that is going on in the U.S.? We see some groups flagrantly, flagrantly burn down towns with no consequence. Then we see another group protest and not burn anything down. And, that's, um, and that is the group that goes to jail for 15 years. Neither group is good, but when one gets punished and the other doesn't, I find it deeply disturbing. This is just a single example. There are others. How do we explain these things to our kids? Yeah, if you read in 
Proverbs, which again, I recommend there's 31 Proverbs, one for every day of the month to read a proverb a day. It talks about over and over again, how unjust scales are an abomination to God. That when, when people tip the scales in one person's favor, then, then God says that, that's, that's horrible. And that it's the widows and the poor and the strangers and the aliens who get overlooked in justice because they don't have enough money. In America, if you have enough money, you can get off on pretty much anything. So um, you can get away with cold-blooded murder. You can, there's all kinds of things, and, or you won't be prosecuted. Or the people who would witness against you mysteriously die in prison, all these things. There's just so much injustice in America on both sides, white, black, whatever, Democrat, Republican. There's so much corruption gone. Don't get sucked into the political side of it. Okay? Get, just realize that injustice is part of the end times. Okay? As the de- Jesus said, as the days of Noah were, so, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And it, what did the Bible say about Noah's day? It was full of violence and evil. So just expect that it's going to get worse and that that's a sign. It's like birth pangs to a mom. The baby's coming soon, okay? Um, what we should be looking at more so is when our brothers and sisters in Christ are persecuted. I mean, yes, I feel bad for someone being persecuted because of their political persuasion, but I, I more sympathize and feel drawn to those who are suffering in the name of Christ, like the two ladies, Miriam and Masurzai, that were thrown into prison for almost two years just for handing out New Testaments. And so, um, and there's, it just happens all over. Right now in Ethiopia, the Muslims are killing Christians by the thousands, raping their daughters, enslaving them, making them sex slaves. And the world, like, who cares? Man, but I tell you what, if there was oil involved, man, the United States would be there with soldiers and helicopters. But blacks killing blacks, who cares? And I think that's racism. I, so I, there's a lot of injustice in the world and we should teach our children about it and just say, even, co- even so, come Lord Jesus quickly. <laughs> so it just makes you long for the coming of Christ. And even though we may have things we want to look forward to with our kids, our grandkids, or having kids, or grow- graduating college, but if that means we get to fulfill our dreams while there's millions that are suffering while we get to go to college, I'd rather Jesus come now and then my dreams get thrown in the trash can because everything I'd ever want is in heaven with Jesus. And I'm looking forward to him delivering those who are suffering. But again, people say, well, why would a good God allow all this suffering? Well, I don't think God's the one shooting the machine guns and planting the bombs in the streets. We're doing it to ourselves. And, that, and so the very people who blame God for that want free will to choose their sin, but then all of a sudden they hate when someone chooses a sin that hurts them. So anyway, enough about that. Sorry. Any other questions? What is the fear of the Lord, and why is it the beginning of knowledge? Okay. Um, this is going to be the last question because of time. Um, so, so the fear of the Lord, this is actually one of those few times I disagree with Tim Keller. <laughs> um, he says it has nothing to do with being afraid of something. I believe it does. I, the best example of it is the Bible. How did God appear to Moses? What kind of bush? A burning bush. Should we be afraid of fire? Yes, if we don't handle it properly. We cook with it all the time. We warm ourselves with it. We do use fire in the refineries. We use fire, and when we use it properly, it's a great thing. But as you saw in Maui, when it's not used properly, it's a destructive thing. So you get on the wrong side of God, you'll find that he's destructive, and you better be afraid. When you get on the right side of God and follow his will properly, you will see what a blessing it is and how how many great things. So... The fear of the Lord is to respect him that 
and, and someone said it. I, I don't, where did I hear this quote recently? I think it was Skip Heitzig. It's uh, an awareness of the thereness. An awareness of the thereness. That God is always right there. And so, guys, would you look at pornography if your wife was right there? I don't think so. You'd be afraid of her reaction. But God always is right there. And if you're aware, if you have an awareness of the thereness, it'll change your behavior. And that's the fear of the Lord. And that will help you to walk in wisdom. All right. So what we're going to do is somebody nominate what you think was the best question. I'll take three nominations and then we'll, we'll vote. Okay. What do you think was the best question? Who has one? Nathan, what do you think was a good question? And it, you can't be your stories. Okay, good. The one at the end, the, the fear of God. Okay, someone else nominate what you think was a good question. Aria. The one at the end? So you're with Nathan, right? The one at the end? Okay, two nominations for the one at the end. Anybody want to pick a different one? Okay. So all, in, all believing that the last question was the best question? All right, cool. who, has, who, who do we give credit for that? Who would ask that question? How do you define the, the fear of the Lord, right? Yeah. It was your question? All right, Linda, give her a hand. Meet me in the lobby, I'll give you a Chick-fil-A gift card. All right, cool. Oh, thanks. All right, I'll give myself a Chick-fil-A gift card. All right, let's stand and let's read this blessing over one another as the body of Christ here this morning. And also, it was good to have lots of guests in the house this morning. Let's give them a hand. We're glad that you're here. Uh, Jude verses 24 and 25. Let's read together. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.